Everybody is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into evil folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello the internet and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast, where we discuss political science and popular culture, as always hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Ronan. Uh, number 10, motherfuckers, yay, double digits, we are going strong here, welcome to the Lands of Leviathan again, um, so first of all, I would like to make a little apology on our episode number eight, uh, The Modernization of Mordor. Brock and I made a mistake, which is unusual for us. Um, But one of our astute listeners, Thomas Daly, picked up that uh, the gaffer is not a political figure. He's actually just a gardener. And uh, it was his son, Samwise Gamgee, who became mayor of the Shire after the Battle of the Shire. That's correct. Hey, Brock? Yeah, that's correct. And also, I think uh, it was either Thomas or Moshe who pointed out that, I think it was Moshe who said that it's the only, the mayor of Hobbiton is the only elected position in Mordor that we know about. Uh, not not Hobbiton, uh, the mayor of uh, Lake Town. The, in, um, oh, the mayor of oh, Lake Town right. in, uh, in the Hobbit um, yeah. is the only elected position in Middle Earth, or that we know of which is interesting because we were having that discussion. So thanks a lot to uh, Marshy Jasper as well. Um, guys, we really love no, this feedback. It's fucking awesome, um, even when we're wrong. We don't like that so much, but it's all good. Great. So episode 10 is about the okay. post-scarcity resource utopia of Star Trek universe. Exactly. One of my favorite uh, nerd topics is Star Trek. But first of all, I'd like to introduce you to our first guest. Oh, yeah. Yay. This is Nishi. Bopana, she is a colleague of mine and an expert in politics as well as economics. Nishi, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, my name is Nishi Bopana, and I love economics and political science, political theory, and am an all-around nerd and pop culture enthusiast. Really excited to be here. Yay! Woo. We are very happy. So, to how have much? Did, how much did Peter pay you to 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 come over and record this with him? <laughs> I cannot okay, that... disclose that <laughs> on air. Okay. I, I thought pay. there was some ploy behind it. I don't have any money. I don't have any money, so I don't have anything to pay with. Okay, God, this podcast is not making me any money, guys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so great. So, Peter, since Nisha and I are the ones who haven't watched as much Star Trek as you have. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about the universe and what it's all about and how we get to the thing that makes the Star Trek universe a post-scarce resource? Yes. Economy? So Star Trek as a uh, science fiction universe is actually fairly interesting because it's one of the few science fiction universes that aren't terribly depressing. So you watch a lot of science fiction. Um, even the Star Wars universe, to a certain extent, is like, oh, there's war, there's terrible things going on. Um, and especially if you watch science fiction from the 70s, like it's just like we had this terrible view of where the world was going. But Star Trek, on the other hand, introduces us to a future that's 200 years into our future that is perfect. It is a utopian society. And there is a reason that it's a utopian society, and that is that the universe or the galaxy has developed the technology to do absolute energy efficient 
energy to mass and mass to energy conversions, which means that they're able to take energy, create matter from it, take matter and create energy from it, which leads to absolutely no loss. So you don't have to burn fossil fuels. You don't have to use nuclear energy anymore. You don't have to do anything bad. But the upside of that is that you also have no scarcity in this universe. Everything is, yeah. So you can you convert matter to energy and energy to matter. And because we always have matter, we can create infinite amounts of energy, which we can use to create more matter. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that you actually have, it's actually the other way around because you have a, you never have an infinite amount of energy. Obviously there's a finite amount of energy in the universe, but you have yeah. such a high level of energy. It's ridinky donkey. So you okay. have from solar panels, you can collect, you know, basically all the energy of a star and immediately yeah. convert that energy into food that you can then feed the people. And do they ever go into much detail to describe how that works? Um, yeah, like they, well, in the Star Trek universe, they have like uh, solar collectors and things like that, but they don't actually go into the technology because obviously that would be crazy. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so the interesting thing, though, is that this immediately creates a situation where things have no value because suddenly there is no need to buy stuff because everybody has what's called a replicator in their house. Now, the replicator is the little... Is there a currency in the Star Wars universe? Oh, it's Star Trek, sorry. Um, it's actually interesting, Nishi asked this question earlier. There is a currency. It's called gold-pressed latinum. And the interesting thing about gold-pressed latinum is it's used as a currency because it's the one thing in the universe, apart from dilithium crystals, which are what are used to fuel warp reactors, but we won't get into that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, gold-pressed latinum cannot be replicated. Now, that's its only value. There are certain species in the galaxy, um, in the Star Trek universe, that do trade, that are capitalists, such as the Ferengi. The Ferengi's whole culture is based on capitalism. Uh, the only time that humans ever use this currency is when they're trying to get something from the Ferengi, because the Ferengi won't just trade or barter. But on Earth okay, itself... Okay, so the currency doesn't play a huge role until they encounter a society that works off a currency. Exactly. To be honest, it's really okay. just a storytelling mechanism so that um, in shows like Deep Space Nine, um, the writers can set up like interesting trades and things like that. It's just to create like a marketplace situation. Okay. Um, okay. But on Earth, um, there, is no, there is no economy because there is no scarcity of resources. And... This is interesting, and obviously Nishi would know more about this, but the whole idea of an economy is based on the idea of a scarcity of resources. Once something is scarce, it has a value. Once it has a value, it can be traded. But when you have something that can be produced from nothing, which exists in the Star Trek universe, you have a situation where essentially all material goods lose their value. So The value, the, yes. So is there a role for like innovation? Research and development. Well, that's the interesting thing is that in this universe, people do not pursue work for the sake of gaining money because obviously nobody gets paid for anything because why would you need money? Because you don't need to buy anything. So nobody works for a living. If you wanted to sit on the couch and do nothing for your whole life, you could totally do that. What people do... do they, is, there, is there a story arc in Star Trek about those people? No, because by the time that Star Trek occurs, this technology has already been introduced. And it's... No, I mean, about the people that, that take advantage of the fact that they don't have to earn a living, that they don't have to get paid. 
Well, they, they, you can't take advantage of the system because there's nothing to be taken advantage of. If you want to sit on your couch and do nothing, that's just your prerogative. Okay, well, clearly, Peter, you don't understand my question because you probably think it's quite natural to sit in your ass and do nothing. What I mean is that is taking advantage. Is there anyone who does that? No, 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 because that would be a boring TV show to watch. <laughs> like, so, uh, so, so, as depicted by the writers of the, of the show, the, the, there's no one, there's no, no individuals or body, community or body of people in Star Trek that find it okay to not have to work? Um, no, there aren't. Because the writers... So, why, so what does everyone work for? The writers of the show make the assumption that the basic, uh, the basic nature of humans is to better oneself. That is human nature. Picard goes on at length in many episodes that human beings by nature attempt to better themselves and their situation. Now, because their situation is fairly perfect in terms of material needs, the way they better themselves is through study, through art, through literature, through trying to understand the universe around them. So people become artists, musicians, scientists, and explorers. It's basically the perfect ideal of the Renaissance that Leonardo da Vinci would have wanted. Okay, that's, that's really cool. I like the way you explained that. That's, that really... Um... That's because I'm really good at explaining things. No, it's probably because Nishi's whispering in your ear. Nishi, what's your take on this? I think it's fascinating. I think it works in the sense that Star Trek uh, tries to create a utopia. I think Peter touched on this before, but it really comes down to how you conceptualize human nature or what you believe human nature to be. Because if you accept Picard's uh, concept of that, then of course you would have a utopian society where everyone's bettering themselves, bettering society, a modern renaissance culture. But if human nature is gluttony, self-fulfillment, consumption, all of those things, then absolutely not. We'd see something very different in the Star Trek. I think that's I think that that's exactly right. It's basically the writers of the show, Gene Roddenberry, who was the creator of Star Trek, made a very yeah. specific assumption about human nature. He made an assumption that humans are, will always try to achieve uh, something better for themselves. They are driven by curiosity rather than consumption, which I think is a really think, good no, word. That I don't think used. that's an original assumption. I do. I don't want to discredit the writers at all because they have clearly they have a lot of success to celebrate. But that assumption, I think, comes about naturally when you've created a, a hierarchy of needs and like Maslow's hierarchy of needs that has just subtracted the base layer of need for shelter, food, water, and scarce resources. Once that's gone, you just move human society a few rungs up that hierarchy and you, and you just realize that, okay, then people are going to apply more of the energy now to things like knowledge, creativity, understanding, relationships, those kinds of things that were previously a bit more seen as a bit more luxurious in relative terms. Yeah, of course. Like, I don't think it's an original uh, assumption at all. I mean, it's not like Gene Roddenberry was the first guy to come up with this idea because essentially yeah. this is what Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates liked, the Vitae Contemplativa, which was the life yeah. of contemplation. They've considered yeah. that to be the greatest good. The absolute pinnacle of human nature was to actually just be curious and have all your base needs taken care of. But... The question well, there's so many ways, but there's so many avenues we can go from that. Um, to take the discussion further, we can either try and situate in the world today, try and imagine how we could get that right today, uh, or we can talk, discuss the implications, uh, if we did get it right today for the, for the economy, whether 
we would actually reach a utopia or whether we would reach a dystopia. And I'd really want to hear Nisha's opinion on that. Uh, or we could try and work out how how to achieve more of that or achieve more uh, of a curious and developmental lifestyle while still having to take care of basic material needs. In other words, without having a replicator, how do we reprioritize our lives so that we're able to you know, focus more on that kind of stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the replicator is so, I mean, if the replicator is even scientifically possible, it's so far in our future that, we, I mean, we won't see it in our lifetime. We do have things that are happening on Earth at the moment that lead us to some of the possibilities that exist within what I call a post-scarcity economy. And it's obviously not what I call, economists call it that. Um, so I think that before we get into any of what-ifs, we should turn to our guest who is our expert yeah. in economics to explain what the Maybe. post-scarcity economy actually is and let me venture an opinion Nisha you please correct me if I'm wrong this is my understanding like a, my three-year-old understanding is that the post-scarcity means that well everything that we make and everything we strive for materially all has to come from somewhere and all has to be generated from something and as soon as it's generated or acquired by me it means that someone else can't have it so the, the opportunity cost of me acquiring material resources is that someone else can't. And that means there could be conflict, there could be competition. That's not always bad. Sometimes that's good. But it, innately, it is, it is a scarcity that induces that type of economic environment. If we were to have an economy that, that reduced that amount of competition by providing more resources, in fact, to the point where we had unlimited resources, and I understand that the need to compete and the need to trade and to add value to things would dissipate we would have to we would have to change our lifestyle completely right so scarcity determines the rules of economic systems as we see them right now so that means who has control over resources how things are supplied who demands what um it basically governs the rules of how we give value and prices to items to products to services currently so in a post-scarcity economy, we don't have any of those things. If, say, energy was limitless, again, if energy was scarce in some regards, that would introduce more economic regulations and rules the way that we see them nowadays to a Star Trek universe. But once the scarcity is gone, you basically see the economic system as we are used to it, the way we interact with it nowadays completely completely disappear. But that doesn't mean that there can't there can't be other ways in which people demand and supply products, services. It's just no longer based on money and the scarcity that we know. Yeah, well, and that's that, when I th that's how I think an yeah. expert is. That's how I think an expert would, would put my three year old understanding. And that's what's and interesting. What I was interesting about that as well is that the the social contract which we've spoken about before is actually also based on the idea of scarcity. If there was no scarcity mm. in the state of nature, there would be no need for the social contract because there would be no scarcity over which to fight over. So I don't want to talk about the social contract anymore because I'm going to fight with you about it, and then we're going to stop talking about Star Trek. What is my is my opinion on the social contract wrong? I don't think so. I think it's right. I think no, not the social contract. I, I think your opinion on scarcity in the social contract is wrong. Why? Scarcity is what creates well, a social contract. 
No, what creates a social contract is the potential for human conflict, human conflict, and and violence. human conflict always arises from a scarcity of resources. I think I have to agree. No, it with doesn't on this one. Yeah, no, I, I can fight with you because I don't know. I like Nishi more than you do. Yeah. So I'm gonna beat you up. That's conflict. Like I'd want the state to protect you from me, right? I reckon. Um, I reckon in at least the initial stages of the social contract, when you go from individual actors who've never interacted to small sorts of communities that first create whatever from whatever school of thought their conceptions of natural and human rights are it's not because there's scarcity in those first few stages it's because of conflict and danger to the self i'm never bringing a guest on again i bring one on they gang up with brock <laughs> and i get proven wrong it's ridiculous i don't like this don't um, don't take don't take it so personally it's not you it's just your ideas are wrong <laughs> you mean hobbs is wrong because i'm the new hobbs <laughs> <laughs> okay so I would like to then ask a question at this point, because I think what we have is two is we, we've got an assumption that if we have a post scarcity environment, that human beings would then pursue some kind of other good. But Brock, let's say that uh, the replicated technology was available to us right now. What would yeah. happen to our society. And I'd like you to answer that. And then I'd like Nishi's opinion on that as well. Uh, I, I like your question a lot. It sets up a good dialectic or at least a good debate because, and hopefully a dialectic comes from it because <laughs> we could say that Star Trek has got it perfectly right that uh, by eradicating the base needs of Maslow's hierarchy, then of based on scarce resources, then we would just progress up the ladder to pursue things like knowledge and security and uh, understanding and compassion relationships and creativity, all those other things. Um, but we could also say that maybe if we actually didn't have to pursue, if we didn't have a material reward for work, then we would, we would actually have people taking advantage of having to work. The human psyche would break down without a reward system and there would be nothing for us to strive for. In fact, we would break down into the type of people we find in floating around on that spaceship in the Wally film mm. where we become overweight, um, overly dependent on machines, overly dependent on external stimuli. We no longer seek into, we, no, we don't have our own internal drive. And, uh, and so human society fails mm. and we essentially plateau on the, you know, the developmental uh, range of progression. Um, my, if I had to cast in my lot, I would say that, I really value the need of humans to work. And I, um, for me, it's not just uh, an economic belief of mine. It also comes down to the human psyche and a spiritual belief. I think we were meant to work. We're designed to work. And it, working enables us to live and enables us to die. If, we'd have to, if we take that away, if we take away the need to work and give people the option not to, we'd become the perfect welfare state. And I think uh, I'd cast my lot in with Wally. I think the writers of Star Trek were um, a bit delusional. I do have a response to that, but I want to hear Nishi's point first. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd probably go the other way because in the contemporary world, as we see it in high-income countries, developed nations, even when people no longer have to work for their basic needs and they've gone way beyond subsistence, they, we already see many people taking on these other meanings, these other values, or we see other people gaining other meaning from work separate from 
uh, subsistence income as we do right now. So we already see how people could pursue various passions, talents, whatever it means for them to have a meaningful life. Do I think that the world would automatically go that way to a utopia? Absolutely not, um, because there are strong social structures and the way the world's set up right now. I think we are very consumption driven, like at least Western world, for sure. Um, so I think that a lot of things would need to change, but I, I, I definitely think it's possible for people to one day get to a utopia and find meaningful work, pursue their dreams above everything else. See, and I think uh, I'm so like now I'm on the, like I'm on one side, I'm on the other because, you know, obviously living in, you know, having lived in South Africa, lived in England and lived in Australia, like you see a huge amount of youthful people who are on welfare, who don't do anything. Who, you know, that there is a huge drug problem within those communities. There is a huge problem with people not working for welfare, getting stuck on welfare. Uh, that, that obviously is an issue in society. Of course, you have way more people that, you know, work for wealth, you know, are on welfare because they absolutely have it. So I, I don't think, I don't want to say that the majority of people who are on welfare are not working, but the very fact that there are people who are on welfare who are essentially abusing the system, um, that raises a question in my mind. I agree with Nietzsche. I think it depends which society you've been socialized into. But my, 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 my theory is that human beings do not need to work for something that I agree with the writers of Star Trek that human beings are, a, in, a, in essence, a progressive animal. We are curious. We seek progression regardless of where we are. If you have been brought up in a bad situation, where you have been taught to sit on welfare and not do anything else, that is possibly what you will end up doing. But I think the very fact that a vast majority of like the world's greats have been people who are incredibly wealthy and didn't have to do anything to work. You know, like your Francis Bacon's, your Leonardo da Vinci's, Bill Gates to a certain extent. Very all very wealthy people who came from very well off families. They didn't have to work to succeed. But they did. And it's, I think it's because that there is a human drive to achieve, even if your, your payment is not money, because your payment is still going to be something, um, intangible. And I think that that's what happens in the Star Trek universe. Jean-Luc Picard is captain of the Enterprise, not because he's getting paid for it, but because he has an innate desire to explore and to become the greatest fucking starship captain ever in the world. Because Kirk is better. I mean, Picard is better than Kirk. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> the only thing I'd say about that is I think it might be slightly difficult um, and in some cases dangerous to try and distill it to innate human nature or how psychology innately works for people. Um, because I don't know if we can run that sort of a social experiment right now. Um, and Let's, with do certainty. Let's do it. Let's do that. But um, yeah, I guess Star Trek set like 350 years from now. Yeah. So with, of course, like right now, I, those sorts of social influences would have great impact on what your psychology or what we would consider human nature of any individual or society would look like. But yeah, 350 years from now, if we're creating a utopian world as the Star Trek writers were, you could create an entire system, government, educational systems, healthcare systems, where everyone is 
told from the day that they're born that they can do everything that they want and they have the right to, they have the privilege to. So yeah, I don't see why it couldn't happen if we could restructure everything in a utopian sense. Yeah. What do you think, Brock? Um, I'm having to re-examine the proximity between the concept of labor and um, material reward. Yeah. Because um, I still place a huge amount of value on labor, but it doesn't have to be rewarded with material goods. You know, you can... To a certain extent, I'm not sure to what extent yet, but to a certain extent, reputation, like you say, can be a strong currency. I'm just, I just struggle to see in, in realistically, not in the Star Trek universe, realistically in our world, I struggle to see a society that does not place a huge amount of value on material goods. And maybe mm. that's what a replicator could do is it could, we could learn to live without thinking about provision, without thinking about security. Without thinking about how am I going to make it through, you know, this month or whatever. Um, if if my if my entire thought and people and the, the entire workforce was so de- uh, dedicated, de- dedicated their entire time and lives and, and thinking capacities to making the world better in the sense of reputation or perhaps knowledge, then then maybe it could work. Mm. But I I'm just I'm struggling with the with the details of that. I'm still not sold on it. Mm. So I think one thing is that currently the way societies or the world is structured, communities and countries, we have a hierarchical structure that is very much based on economic power. But in a post-scarcity world, if everyone has access to all goods, we don't have things like luxury power determined by having or not having. So I think it is a far and away hypothetical situation that we can't even imagine. But if every country had access to all means of subsistence, all means of luxury, then even in today's world, if we applied that replicator, you could hypothetically envision where those sorts of things, the the value of money, the value of having Thing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> things well, are no, no longer important. No longer the dictator of power relations and the hierarchy. Yeah, I mean, let's let's move it away from the hypothetical then, because there is something that exists. The world now is, to a certain degree, in a post scarcity environment. Um, when you're talking about, like, let's talk about first world countries: uh, America, England, Europe, Australia, you know, Japan to a certain extent. The world produces more than enough food to feed the entire population of the planet. We have enough resources to do what we need to do. Um, most developmental studies, people will tell you that we have a distribution problem, not a scarcity problem. But there is yeah. another issue in first world countries that's starting to crop up, and that is that of automation. We have so many jobs that exist today that do not need to be done by people. Like regardless of what the most hipster barista tells you, the best cup of coffee can be made by a robot. The best burger, robot. The pretty much a huge amount of jobs. McDonald's does not need staff. It needs robots. We have the technology to replace a huge amount of our workforce with robots. And, you know, Marx obviously warned about uh, automation because he said, like, when people get laid off, they won't be making any money. Um, but Marx also predicted that the price of commodities would go up, which didn't happen, which is exactly in my opinion, why the Marxist revolution never happened. But interestingly enough, with the automation, it allows corporations to also make a lot more money. It allows those corporations to 
pay a lot more tax, which some of them aren't doing, but they should be. And that allows governments, for the first time in human history, to pay their their population a basic income, regardless of the work they're doing. Now, you're starting... I detest your argument. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not... This is not an argument. I'm saying what's happening. That is happening. We have basic income experiments happening in India at the moment. We have basic income experiments happening in Canada at the moment. What I'm saying is that with the increase in production created by automation, we have the ability to essentially create, obviously not the replicator, but create a situation where people are getting paid to not work or people who can't find work and are thus getting, I mean, they're not getting paid a huge amount of money. Let's say $3,000 a month uh, in Australia. In America, I don't know, what would be the the basic thing? $3,000? $5,000? It doesn't you matter. You will never see basic income in America. Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, South Africa, if you if you had 10,000 rand a month, that'd be awesome, you know. Now, in my opinion, <laughs> I'm saying that those people, if you got them young enough, if they hadn't been socialized into a welfare state, into a, and I don't mean a welfare state as in a state that provides welfare. I mean a welfare state of being dependent on welfare. So you catch people at 20, you say, hey, dude, we're going to give you $3,000 a month, with that you can afford to live comfortably and you know you can go to university and do whatever you want. I think that the majority of people would continue to elevate themselves to whatever they wanted to be because if they didn't, then it raises in my mind a whole bunch of questions of why do stupid rich people still continue to do stuff? You know, like as much as Donald Trump's a fucking retard, why does he continue to try and make money when he's incredibly wealthy? Why does Bill Gates continue to do the stuff? Because he does? it's greed, Peter. It doesn't solve the greed problem or the problem of entitlement. I mean, I would say, you know, with Bill Gates and Donald Trump, it could be greed, but alternatively, it could be the work itself. What it means to engage in meaningful, mind challenging work where you overcome and constantly see yourself grow. So yeah, I I don't know. For some people, I'm sure it is pure money numbers in the bank, but I could see it plausibly being that other explanation as well. Uh, it's kind of a coin toss for me. I'm not sure where to start. Well, let me begin with Peter's comment on the fourth industrial revolution, because it builds into a bigger criticism I have of the modern economies, which is that, yes, automation is a reality, <laughs> but no, it does not necessarily bring as much good as they claim. And that's because I don't think it's going to bring as much, it's not going to accrue as much free and unused tax money as they say it will. And I certainly don't believe that it would free up, free up enough tax money to distribute equally amongst all earthly citizens so that we can eke out a basic existence. So and if they did do that, I think that would be a crying shame. Because taking away that incentive to work would be a great harm, and I think it would affect many people poorly in that it would cancel their, their, need, for, their need to work. But that's not to say that monetary or material incentives are the only things that exist for people. Their need for work extends beyond that. And I'm willing to accept that even in our reality, never mind in a Star Trek post-scarcity resource economy, even in our, in, even in our world, there, I, I do think that there are many people who would still find it rewarding and satisfactory to work 
without the material incentive to do so of, of finding it beneficial to provide for oneself and, one's for, and for one's family. But if you allow that comfort and that luxury to be applied to several generations of humans, in other words, if you allow, say, I don't know, two generations to go to live out an existence in, in that economy where they are not taught or they're not they do not learn how rewarding or how satisfactory it can be to work without that, ma that material incentive, then we probably end up with the majority of the population that sits on its bum. I have a question for Peter about Star Trek. Um, does everybody in Star Trek have to work, perhaps to be a part of the society and, I don't know, have access to the replicator or the welfare that they they provide them, or is that not taken up at all? Because I, I kind of I understand what you're saying, bro. Um, and I wonder if, when we apply it to our modern day society, if taking up meaningful work, you could do that no longer for a subsistence income, but to be a part of this benevolent utopian system that takes care takes care of your every need. If that would be sufficient motivation. See, okay, so in the Star Trek universe, no, you don't have to work if you don't want to. You don't have to do anything you don't want to. I mean, there, obviously, there's rules and regulations. But that, but see, this is my biggest problem with the argument that you're putting forth because you're, you're making the assumption that given no material gain, people won't work. I don't think that that's true because I think that we have too many historical examples and contemporary examples of people that gain no material benefit and still continue to, to try and achieve something. So I'm going to stop you right there, Peter, because I'm not going to accept that the entire population is lazy or that will suffer from indifference to work. I do believe that there are hardworking people and I do believe that they will continue to exist. But that fraction of the population is going to grow smaller and smaller. The more we allow people to become accustomed to living with the luxury of not having to provide, that there is such a strong incentive, it would allow more people to sit on their bum and do nothing. Why? Because the people that have learned to work for the sake of working, for the good of working, for the for the natural benefit that it brings to society, they have learned a, a certain set of principles that will fall by the wayside as they become a minority. Because They will become a minority because the principles not, are not passed on. There's no incentive to pass the principles on. The principle of having to work is going to be bulldozed by the by the gluttonous sloth that sets in, by the laziness that sets in that overwhelms people when they no longer have to provide. And this assumption of human nature of mine that emphasizes the will or the, the strong disposition of humans to do nothing in the face of abundance is based on a lot more many historical examples. Take a look at any empire. But particularly in the contemporary world, when you look at any most welfare states that are able to provide for those at the at the bottom of the pyramid that allows them a way out to cop out of the need to work and no longer contribute, those countries are suffering from people who take advantage of the system, and is a strong and that becomes a strong support for my belief. But I mean, look at societies that did have a large population that was capable of sitting on their ass and doing very little because they had a labor force taking care of their situation. We've had that. Ancient Greece was that. 
And what it created, I mean, slavery, bad. I'm not advocating <laughs> slavery. But they had a slave force to take care of almost everything. And we got what we got from that was a golden age of philosophy. I mean, that's exactly what their welfare system created, was allowing their own citizens to sit back and relax while the slaves took care of all the hard work. Now, replace slaves with robots, and couldn't we arise at the same situation? I mean, no, Peter, the the one philosopher that decides to stand up, or the one capital-owning citizen in Greece decides to stand up in a court and d debate the meaning of life is kind of like saying because that one captain in the Wally film decided to take on the robot and prove that hum that humanity was worth saving is the is is the the icon or the representative of humanity itself when actually it's just one brave thought provoking progressive person it's not the majority of the population it's such a disingenuous attack on my argument I'm talking about fucking ancient Greece, dude, like Athens, Sparta. These places were all occupied by slave-owning peoples that used the slaves to drive their economies. That that exists. Like, I, what I'm saying is that Wally wouldn't have happened. Those people would have been like, hey, we should go back to Earth, like, the day after they left. Or maybe 50 years later, be like, hey, what happened to Earth? I think Nisha's got something to yeah, say. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that there's significant... Uh, like empirical evidence from the past and from modern day societies to argue both cases, both Brock's and Peter's cases. We're sitting so on the we're really, No, we're just, we're talking about like, we're not talking about what people are innately. We're talking about an inevitable trajectory for humankind. Um, and, and with that, uh, I don't know. The, the one thing that tips me to the side that says that people are going to find these other meaningful um, pursuits and rewards from work is that currently the way our society is set up, when people are, when the majority of people are forced to work for subsistence wages, they are not able to tap into the unique human capital that is actually true to themselves. So I think when people nowadays actually have the opportunity to do that, have, say, basic income or welfare or five generations of old money, they have that security, they have that encouragement to tap into those unique resources. And often we see that they do. I think that would be good for the individual, but also I think the society could progress much more rapidly because right now so much of the workforce is doing what robots have to do. And we don't even know how many brilliant Artists, entrepreneurs, researchers, like <laughs> politicians are being wasted away in those monotonous jobs. So, yeah, I think once that becomes the norm and if it, if it can become a culture, then I think that, that that's a likely trajectory. Okay, so I'm going to entertain this idea for a moment. Let's pretend that mass autom um, automation of the job market does not produce an insurmountable amount of okay. joblessness in the world economy. And let's assume that automation is going <laughs> to produce, release all this untapped tax wealth that will allow us to tap into that body of political knowledge that is being wasted away in a McDonald's shop serving burgers in Bangalore. 
Captain Picard. And now we have yeah. a wealth <laughs> of knowledge and developmentally minded people who are committed to making society better. To pretend that there are billions and billions of new professors and theorists and philosophers that are all going to direct their thought to making the world a better place. Yeah. And just to make this realistic, we'll also have to assume that all of these ta tax funds that are being produced by these new automation companies are being paid into some sort of global Bitcoin system that equally dispenses an amount to each citizen of the globe so that we can all eke out a meager existence and we're free to pursue whatever we want. Then I would say in that world, it is not that there would be no positive thinkers. I would definitely assume, and, and I do believe, that there would be a great amount of knowledge wealth created, a great amount of information established, and good progressive thoughts that are, that are pursued. However, it, does, it would not, that body of work would not justify the, the cost of people becoming apathetic, entitled, and ignorant as they progressively learned to let go of the principle of hard work, since they no longer need to provide. So yes, I do believe that people have the will to work. They feel an urgency and need to work, but everyone knows the battle that one goes through with laziness. Everybody also suffers from laziness. And the only thing that it tips us over that point is hunger, starvation, self-provision. If you take that, most people are going to, if you take that away, if you take those constraints away, you no longer have the incentive. And I think most people will revert back to being lazy bastards. So yes, I do think it is a tight debate. It is a close call based on the assumptions of human nature. But through my studies and experience, I'm still going to be more cautious than the fourth industrial revolutionists. And I predict if, if that were to ever happen, if automation were to replace a, the, a large body of, of the workforce throughout the world, and they will get paid equally enough to take care of our subsistence needs, subsistent needs, then I think we would end up like the Wally form. Okay. Um, like I think that we have probably a different philosophical worldview of the nature of humans. I like to see them as strivers towards a greater golden age. And you like and to see them as lazy off. bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this has been one of the, I think one of the most contentious arguments that Brock and I have had with the help of Nishi on this uh, podcast. I think thank, that thank you for your arbitration, Nishi. <laughs> uh, it's been a pleasure. I would love to hear your guys' opinions on this. If you could tweet at us um, or no, comment well, on Facebook, that would be amazing. Don't, don't tweet because Peter's the one who does the tweets and he'll respond. Rather send us an email. I check the email <laughs> inbox and then I'll respond. You would rather want to be talking to me on this issue. Yeah, yeah. All you conservative Republicans out there who are, for some reason, listening to this podcast, Brock is your friend. For all the <laughs> rational people out there who, like, actually care about humanity, come and have a chat with me. I'll make you a cup of tea and give you a hug, and it'll all be good, okay? Yeah, we are heading towards the Star Trek Go talk to Peter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. We'll see you bye next bye. time. Oh, wait, one last thing. I'd like to say thank you to Nishi for being here. We hope to have her again. Nishi, do you have anything, last words to impart? Thanks for having me, you guys. It has been thrilling. Genuine pleasure. Do you want anybody to follow you on Twitter or anything? I don't have a Twitter, so, so probably not. Oh, <laughs> I love you. Please come back. <laughs> Thank you, guys. We'll see you next time.
Once more, footnote, the theme that we used in this episode is one that you guys should know, Where No Man Has Gone Before, which is also informally known as the Star Trek fanfare or Star Trek theme. Um, it is by Alexander Courage. It was first recorded in 1964, and it has been done by a number of different orchestras, but its owner is Gene Roddenberry and Alexander Courage. Thanks, guys. Good one. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. We'll upload the episode onto our website, landsoftheviathan.com. You can find it all there along with all our other SoundCloud tracks. And if you'd like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is also there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. So send us an email at landsoftheviathan at gmail.com. It's L-A-N-D-S-O-F-L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N. And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast. And you can also listen to our tracks directly on your Android or iPhone um, via the SoundCloud or iTunes app. Hope you enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much.